You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Let's Farmanize. I'm Cal Vandegrift. And I'm Shane Gerritsen. Hi. <laughs> Wait, can we start over? <laughs> no, I'm afraid we cannot. <laughs> All right, it. well, I'm Ken Song. And today we've got a very special Halloween-themed episode for you. We're going to be looking at some creepy pasta, some scary stories shared around the internet, and sharing our own original creepy pasta for you. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. Oh, yeah. We are so excited to announce that we are joining the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the number one platform supporting pharmacists and pharmacy students. We'd like to give a special thanks to all of our listeners who have been with us since day one and whose feedback and support has brought us to where we are now. Thank you so much. We hope you never stop learning, always stay curious, and of course, enjoy the episode. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Are you familiar with the creepypasta called the Russian Sleep Experiment? I think I read it once or twice when I was like 13 or 14. Yeah, I know you mentioned it on a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Ken, have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I actually watched it on YouTube. It's pretty interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't go as far as watching the YouTube special. Tell me about that. Well, I was more interested in the uh, illustrations they provided. It was pretty gory. But um, the story itself, I I think it's quite unique. Okay, so I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to read a little bit of the Russian sleep experiment, a creepypasta that uh, was popularized on the internet maybe about a little less than 10 years ago. I think 2012, 2013 was when it gained some traction. It seemed like that was the time. That was the peak of the fame. Yeah, Sounds they've also, right. yeah, they're actually, they've made two movies, I think, at least two, like, films about it, the Russian sleep experiment and the Soviet sleep experiment. I don't know if they were oh. any good. I couldn't find them on any streaming platforms. But I'm going to read you a little bit about the Russian sleep experiment, and then we're going to break it down, and we're going to talk about the realism of what happens. Here we go. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilets, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other, and began alternately whispering in the microphones and one-way mirrored portals. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. 
At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber repeatedly, yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering into the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were still working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response, We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately, voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened, and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although it was difficult to tell just by looking at them. So here's where I'm going to stop reading the story. The rest gets a little violent, and I'll just summarize it for you. You remember how violent the, the video was that you saw on YouTube, right? It was pretty graphic. Yeah, yeah. Right. The story continues in that same vein, and I'm, I'm just going to summarize it. You can obviously find the, the whole thing online. It's just the Russian sleep experiment. How did that make you feel before we continue? Was that, that was pretty creepy, right? It was uneasy. I have an uneasy feeling. Yeah. That was interesting. It yeah. sounded just like, you know, it's the same story off YouTube. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it's the same thing. I'll have to check out that YouTube clip. I I've never seen it. So the four remaining test subjects had mutilated and eaten the fifth test subject and also mutilated themselves, causing grievous wounds, including removal of the abdominal skin and muscle. I'll give you the information now. I'm just going to summarize it. And for the physiological statements, we'll discuss them, and I'll break them down whether they are plausible or not. The first several days I've already described. On day five, the subjects stopped consuming the rations. This was likely when the subjects began eating each other and themselves instead of the sufficient food that had been provided to them. The subjects were removed from the chamber at the end of the 15 days of sleep deprivation with much difficulty as the subjects really didn't want to leave the chamber, even though having suffered dreadful bodily injury. The subjects did not want to leave the gas. They were really, really enjoying it. They were probably at this point really addicted to the feeling of the stimulant gas. Upon medical examination, one of the subjects is described as having been administered 10 times the human dose of morphine derivative. They're trying to put the patients under surgery to repair the damage that they've done to themselves. So they're trying to subdue this one patient and they give him 10 times the human dose of morphine derivative. This is one thing we're, we're going to talk about. He was still remained quite violent and strong enough to resist the trained Russian soldiers. The patient actually bled out on the operating table while the surgeons were attempting to repair the self-inflicted damage and his heart was seen to continue beating a full two minutes after he bled out. 
So let's talk about the two things that, that stand out during this from this portion. What do you think stands out? Well, the heartbeat thing is, is certainly a, a big standout for me. Okay. And any other thing? Uh, there's a few. Uh, the 10 times morphine is pretty Yeah, that's, pretty those are the two that I want to talk about. So let's talk about the morphine first. First problem is the statement, morphine derivative. Which isn't, isn't a huge problem, but we're just going to brush over it really quickly. There wasn't really a prevalent morphine derivative other than oxycodone at the time this story allegedly took place in the late 40s. Fentanyl wasn't created until 1959, and the other synthetic opioid derivatives like, like Ultram and hydrocodone came out much later, 80s and 90s, I think. Let's just stick with morphine for the purpose of this little game. Intramuscular morphine's max safe dose is up to 30 milligrams every four hours for pain. It's not a sedative or tranquilizer or anesthetic. It's an opioid analgesic. It's got side effects of drowsiness and sluggishness, but it's not usually used to effectively sedate patients when you've got other drugs at your disposal, as we'll see with the next patient. Despite the ineffective indication, let's look at that dose. 10 times the human dose. 300 milligrams of morphine based on the max dose of, of 30 milligrams. The average threshold for overdose is considered 200 milligrams of instant release morphine. However, people have overdosed on low doses as low as 60 milligrams. That's two 30 milligram instant release tablets. So if a patient is opioid naive, there have been reported incidents of overdosing with just two of the 30 milligram morphine tablets, which is really scary. Yeah, right. that's, that's low. You don't, you don't mess with opioids. They're, they're really scary. So 300 milligrams in a patient that is assumed to be opioid naive if they could go 15 days without opioids in this sleep chamber is very unrealistic. We're going to use a point system here, and for this, I deduct one realism point. We are now at negative one. Dang. Now for the heart beating after death. This is actually possible. The heart, as we know, has its own pacemaker cells in the sinoatrial node, and as long as these cells have sodium, calcium, and potassium, can continue to function after brain death. Experiments on chicken hearts has led scientists to discover that a heart can continue beating once removed from the chicken body for more than 20 years if kept in a solution of blood, plasma, and water. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. That's yeah. crazy. You've heard of the chicken who lived without a head, right? Yeah. It was, and they not. fed him with the syringe. Yeah, it was the same chicken. What? Oh, it was the, the same heck? one? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, oh that would have been interesting. That would have been really cool. Yeah, they Frankensteined him. Poor thing. Franken chicken. <laughs> so we'll add one point for realism. We're at zero. Next subject to undergo surgery was so strong that he was able to tear through a four inch wide strip of leather and resist the 200 pound Russian soldier holding him down. He also broke several of his own bones, and when he was finally administered the anesthesia, he died immediately. Upon autopsy, because they thought it was necessary, it was discovered that his blood contained more than three times the level of oxygen. A lot has happened to this patient. Let's break it down. Three main points here, I think. First, let's talk about the super strength and pain resistance this guy has. There is no evidence that stimulants of any kind nor sleep deprivation can cause superhuman strength or pain resistance. In fact, long-term sleep deprivation has been correlated in several studies with an increase in chronic pain or arthralgia. We're deducting one realism point for this. We're at negative one. Okay, next. The patient receives anesthesia and immediately dies. Just flatlines. In regard to chronic stimulant use or misuse and the administration of general anesthesia, there has been evidence of cardiac arrests in many patients, including a 10-year-old boy in 2008 who did survive with the administration of atropine and successful life-saving techniques. He developed bradycardia, which evolved into a life-threatening asystole. So did they mention at all what anesthesia that they mm -hmm. used at this? Yeah, no. I figured as yeah. much. 
I mean, it is it is a creepypasta after all. It's not like these were, this was made by medical people. Yeah, but. exactly. The mechanism is theorized to involve the chronic depletion of norepinephrine and dopamine storage, and the smaller reservoir of endogenous catecholamines results in a dulled response of the sympathetic nervous system. This can lead to bradycardia, like in the little boy's case, and subsequent refractory hypotension. This is one of the many reasons why it's so important to disclose to your doctors and surgeons every medication you take, even if you're not supposed to be taking it. Even safe and legal use of stimulants could result in a very dangerous situation. For this, I'll give one realism. Now, let's talk about hyperoxemia. Before we talk about human physiology, let's hop in our DeLorean, take a trip back in time. Not to the 1940s, not to World War II, or even World War I. Let's go back a little further. The Carboniferous period began 359 million years ago. This was before humans, before dinosaurs, before the asteroid that wiped out the aforementioned dinosaurs, before MySpace, even before Pangea. Y'all know Pangea? Yeah, I know that. This was before Pangea. Long time ago. The Carboniferous period was the time of giant insects. Dragonflies with wingspans greater than two feet. Imagine a dragonfly the size of a hawk flying around your front yard. They were aptly named griffinflies. Early cockroaches were about double the size of their modern relatives. Imagine a Twinkie with legs. That is yeah. crazy. I already hate like two inch bugs. A crunchy Twinkie crawling oh, around. Oh God, oh God, this needs to stop. The reason insects were able to grow to these enormous sizes was because of the increased oxygen concentration in the atmosphere. Oxygen levels in our air today are about 21%, but in the Carboniferous period, oxygen levels were estimated to be up to 35%. Carboniferous, real quick. Is that just carbon, phosphorus, carboniferous? Not phosphorus. I think maybe iron. It's F-E-R-O-U-S. Oh, okay. Maybe. maybe. I mean, it's just a contraction of some, some words. Like, okay. I don't think we need to derive too much meaning from it, but I think it has something to do with carbon. Okay. Probably more referring to the massive forestation, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Okay. This was caused by massive increases in the world's dense forest population, replacing the world's CO2 with sweet oxygen, everybody's favorite gas. Heck yeah. The reason I'm bringing this up is because of the unique requirements to survive and thrive in such a high oxygen environment. This requirement is an exoskeleton. Insect exoskeletons have valves called spiracles, which connect directly to individual tracheas and carry oxygen straight to the insect's muscle cells. The spiracles are controllable, and the insect can dilate or constrict the spiracles based on their oxygen needs. The reason we're going down this tangent is because one, I thought it was interesting, Two, there's a misconception that high oxygen atmospheres or environments somehow result in huge, towering, massive animals and muscular humans, but that's not really the case. The reason animals like mammoths and dinosaurs grew to such sizes is actually a matter of much debate, but is theorized to lie more with evolution and distance between extinction events than oxygen concentration. In fact, oxygen levels during the Cretaceous period, which was home to some massive animals and pretty familiar looking dinosaurs like Triceratops and the infamous T-Rex, were estimated to be between 10 and 15% which is significantly lower than today's 21%. The high oxygen levels are only beneficial to insects. Let's go back to the statement. The patient's blood oxygen levels were three times normal. Oxygen saturation is the fraction of hemoglobin that is bound to oxygen in the bloodstream. If levels exceed 100% saturation, reactive oxygen 2 species enter the blood and react with tissue damaging proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids. If a patient inhales oxygen for too long, three times the concentration of the atmosphere, so 63% oxygen. Within 12 hours, the lungs become congested, pulmonary edema develops, and the bronchii and alveoli are damaged. For this patient to have developed oxygen levels three times the normal limit, they would be comatose. I'm deducting three points for the sheer level of research I devoted to proving this wrong. <laughs> Negative three. Well, it, so pretty much those guys would have been dead within like the first day, I'm assuming so, if they're like 
intaking so much oxygen? They're not actually intaking so much oxygen. Mm -hmm. If they were taking the amount of oxygen required for this patient to reach levels in their blood three times normal oxygen saturation, mm -hmm. which wouldn't be possible because saturation is a percentage, but mm -hmm. if he had that much free oxygen roaming around his bloodstream, he would be would have would have died before the levels would have reached that same. Height. Now that now that I don't doubt, but I'm just thinking about the situation where the patient is in a very still state where they're not even moving. You can't even assume that they're alive. Really, it's hard to tell. Mm. So if they're not using their muscles a lot, that might mean that their oxygen isn't being used up in their body. And I guess I don't know. I'm thinking if they're bradycardic and they're they're just at a really low state where there's not a lot of free flowing oxygen being used up at all mm. there might be a higher level of free oxygen in your blood because it's not being used up by the muscles now it won't lead to three times the amount of oxygen because you're going to die but yeah, i'm just saying it definitely. might it might be possible Maybe. I, I don't know yeah all right so up next some more gruesome nonsense another survivor insists on undergoing the surgery without anesthesia and during the procedure stays awake the whole time and smiles at the nurses like we've already said, the stimulant does not cause any kind of pain relief, nor does sleep deprivation. However, I'm not going to deduct points here because I've already deducted points for this same flaw. We'll proceed. The two more subjects then operated on similarly an attempt to rectify the damage they had done to themselves. These patients required a paralytic because they were laughing too much during the surgery. Okay, fine. More weirdness. Let's get to something physiological that I can contradict. Once paralyzed, the patient's could only follow the surgeons and nurses' movements with their eyes around the room. Hmm, are we onto something here? Maybe. I couldn't find any research or evidence of patients under drug-induced paralysis still being able to move their eyes. However, patients paralyzed by other causes, such as ALS, nerve damage, multiple sclerosis, or spinal injury in many cases, do retain the ability to move their eyes. However, this is a likely a different mechanism than drug-induced paralysis. I'm still going to give a point back for realism. We're at negative two now. Also, these patients allegedly clear the paralytic agent too rapidly and must have more doses administered. Grievous bodily injury there's there's no way that this would result in more rapid renal clearance, it, nor would stimulant use or sleep deprivation. If anything, the drug would be cleared more slowly. Mm -hmm. I'm taking a point back. Negative three. Don't they give... Don't It's ketamine, right? Ketamine's the thing that they give. We talked about this before, but I, I can't remember. I wasn't on propofol when I got my wisdom teeth out. Yeah. Because I was... I, they gave me the, the anesthetic that allowed me to communicate and talk and move, but I don't remember it. And I think that's ketamine is the one that does that. Propofol isn't, but... I think that might be an example of like an anesthesia that you could do that. Propofol is one of the general anesthetics. Yeah, but that knocks you straight yeah. out. That's like a, a total yeah. sleep. I think ketamine, you're like, you're still responsive. You can Maybe. move around. I'm not sure. Yeah. Next up, the Russian military leaders have decided to return the patients to the chamber against the advice of the scientists. Obviously, there must not have been a pharmacist on staff. We would have set him straight. One of the subjects prior to being locked back into the chamber again is hooked up to an EEG, which is an electroencephalography electroencephalography, I said that right, used to detect brain death, seizures, and abnormalities of the electrical activity in the brain. The EEG has been around for a long time, actually since the 1920s. This subject on the EEG apparently bounces in between normal brain waves and brain death. Can somebody tell me what brain death is? I think that's a hot topic no matter what you're talking about. Yeah. They define it in a different way. I mean, they something with, I don't know, the brainstem, I think. Brainstem's included. They, yeah. they do want to admit, they do want to talk about the brainstem, but it's the totally irreversible loss of brain function. I like how you opened your mouth like you were going to say something, but then I was, Absolutely. and I was like, I'll just hold back. <laughs> right. Uh, All right. 
So it's used to determine when a patient is actually deceased if any other factors are not reliable. Well, here's the thing about brain death on an EEG. There are things that can cause brain death mimics in an EEG, in which an EEG flatlines, usually drug-related, including toxic levels of baclofen, lidocaine, or vercuronium. Wait, what's that last one, you may ask? Vercuronium? Oh, that's a paralytic. Wait, like the paralytic the subjects were given for their surgery? I don't know, maybe. But if not that one, then something derived from a similar agent. Ever heard of curare? Yeah, actually. Yes. Yeah, we've talked about this before. In in lab, I think we talked about this when we were talking about the um, sympathetic it, nervous system. Turbo, turboquarine is the drug from it, right? That is one of them, yeah. It's an herbal medicine used as a paralytic for a long time, and many of our paralytics are derived from this plant, including vecuronium. It is entirely possible for vecuronium toxicity in the brain to mimic periods of brain death in an EEG. For this wildly specific and pretty accurate clinical fact, I'm going to reinstate two realism points. We're now at just negative one. Will we see the light of a positive score? Doubt it. Probably not. No. Let's wrap this up. So the ending of the story is really stupid. The commander goes rogue and tries to lock some scientists in the chamber who revolt and shoot him, and then the last surviving subject gives a quasi-sinister yet really dumb monologue about the inner animal lurking within us all, which, much like 2010 Miley Cyrus, can't be tamed. The stimulant gas itself is most likely amphetamine-based. They were pretty common at this time, like we've mentioned before. I discuss a little bit of the history of amphetamine use in our Fallout episode. Amphetamine derivatives can be aerosolized, as we've seen with the Benzedrine nasal inhaler. However, this gas being pumped into the room is likely a low dose, pumped continuously, like an IV drip, but not. Inhalation results in quicker onset and quicker clearance as well, and continuous dosing would be required. Side effects of stimulant misuse are kind of scary. They include irregular heartbeat, seizures, psychiatric abnormalities, hallucinations, and even psychosis. Let's briefly cover sleep deprivation. The Australian National Sleep Research Project claims the record for sleep deprivation is 18 days, 21 hours, and 40 minutes. The timeline of sleep deprivation has some steep adverse effects. After 24 hours, the CDC compares the cognitive impairment to be similar to that of a 0.1% blood alcohol concentration. That is above the legal driving limit. For a 180-pound man, such as me, that's three beers in a row. And this is just after 24 hours of staying awake. It's the equivalent of having had several beers. We, I've, I've stayed up for 24 hours. Have you stayed up for 24? Do you remember back in those days? I honestly don't think I've ever stayed up for 24 hours. Not not in your teens even? like a. I don't think so. I've really? had a pretty like regular healthy sleep schedule. Oh. I really do. Well, that's... That's depressing for I me. I think that's pretty know. crazy, too, because um, I remember hearing, like, you know, military stories from time to time of soldiers requiring to stay up for, like, three days straight just for, like, security purposes mm -hmm. or, like, if they're in a firefight. I think that's pretty crazy. Yeah, the cognitive impairment that you suffer is, is not worth the effects of just being able to stay awake. I took an organic chemistry test off an all-nighter once. That was not a move. No, man. I failed that Never test. Never do. Oh, cool. I, I definitely failed that. Jeez Louise. So after 36 hours, you start having micro-sleeps, or brief periods of sleep without realizing. These can last up to 30 seconds. At this point in time, you're not only suffering from severe cognitive impairment, but also increased appetite, inflammation, impaired immune function, and extreme fatigue. 48 hours is where the hallucinations come in. Depersonalization sets in, anxiety, heightened stress, increased irritability. 72 hours, delusions, complex hallucinations, disordered thinking. 96 hours, your perception of reality is severely distorted. At this point, you've likely reached sleep deprivation psychosis, wherein you are completely incapable of interpreting reality. There are really no studies in long-term continuous use of stimulants 
or of sleep deprivation, and the reasons for that should be obvious. An experiment like this would be incredibly unethical and dangerous. While the premise of the Russian sleep experiment is fascinating, the delivery could use some work, and it definitely needs a more captivating conclusion. But as far as realism goes, the observation of psychosis, violence, and cannibalism is far-fetched, but not totally outside of the realm of possibility. It's the specificities of the compound's effects afterwards that bog the story down with inaccuracies and impossibilities. With the interesting concept and my general belief that some of the results of sleep deprivation caused by stimulant use could actually happen, albeit unlikely, I'd like to bestow an additional realism point to the Russian sleep experiment, bringing our final score to zero. That's right where we like to lie. Right in between yes. actually meaning something. <laughs> Perfect, exactly. <laughs> Do you guys agree with my consensus? I think that's a good overall summary. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. That's pretty good. I didn't know there was that many factual things in it. I thought it was all total bogus, so. Yeah. That's what I was going with as well. It was, yeah, it was surprising that little, like, especially the part about the, the Vecuronium and the yeah. EEG brain death. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They, they, did, they did not know that. No. When they you think they just that. guessed? Uh, they just took a wild guy shot. Guy at just making stuff up, got yeah, lucky. Definitely that happened. Uh, maybe. And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome to part two of the Let's Pharmanize Halloween special brought to you by the Pharmacy Podcast Network. In this episode, Cal is going to read his own short story called The Overnight Pharmacist. No, you got to say that spookier. <laughs> the Overnight Pharmacist. I got you. <laughs> the Overnight Pharmacist. That's perfect. Yo. It's <laughs> oh, oh, so good. Do the sound. Give us your best sound. Please, please. It's not recording. That's fake. Spooky. I'm about to, like, cry. <laughs> this is too good. <laughs> Here we go again, I said, as I laced up my sneakers. I had a shift in 20 minutes that I had to get to. My job, as the overnight pharmacist at Chesterfield's Pharmacy, was a slow one, to put it nicely. I was a new graduate from pharmacy school, and an overnight pharmacist job was the only position available. I had barely passed my NAPLEX a few months ago, and I definitely wasn't your ideal student. I started my evening just like any other night. I grabbed my travel mug full of espresso, popped a pill of modafinil, and headed to work for my 10-hour shift. As I walked outside, I looked up at the charcoal black sky. No stars out tonight, I muttered. The only thing visible in the entire night sky was the moon. I heard on the news earlier that tonight was going to be a harvest moon. And let me tell you, it was incredible. The moon, just above the horizon, was a dark shade of yellow that illuminated the entire sky. Next to the glowing ball of rock was a small cloud. Not a rain cloud, but just your average cloud. Just big enough to encapsulate the entirety of the moon. I sat there for a minute, watching as the small cloud made a brilliant night sky, turned dark and black. As soon as I saw the last glimmers of light vanish, I took a sip of my warm coffee and pushed forward into the cool night to the parking lot. As soon as I got in the car, I cranked up the heat and turned on my radio. Normally, I would listen to the latest episodes of Let's Farmanize, my favorite podcast, to make it to work. But it was getting late, and I forgot my aux cord in the house, so a little radio wouldn't hurt this time around. I flicked through the stations. Well, not a lot of surprises this week. We're going to have some highs in the mid to upper 70s, and things are going to cool down to about 50 degrees or so each night. 
but stocks have gotten a little bit on the expensive side. So the issue is whether we can finally return to earnings growth after an essentially flat year in 2019. And we're back on the show to talk with Ken Song, an expert fisherman who holds the world record for the most eaten McChickens in one sitting. Ken, the world needs to know why. Oh gosh, I suppose it all started one day when I accidentally ordered 20 McChickens instead of 20 McNuggets. Gosh, that was not enough McChickens. I'm just kidding, that was actually enough, too much actually, but yes. How did you feel? Honestly, I thought I was diabetic after that. But, you know, I'm still alive and kicking. That's, that's good to hear. The radio then turned to complete static. Hmm, strange. I must have gotten out of range of that station, I figured. As I pulled into the parking lot, I saw a man in a lab coat who I figured was the floater pharmacist working before me, walking out to his car. I shouted over to him, Hey, how was it tonight? That's when I realized the man I saw had a look of utter terror on his face. His skin was pale, his hands trembling. He was startled by my voice and turned to me quickly. Hey man, you don't look too good. Are you alright? I asked. I left you some prescriptions in the queue to verify. He then turned and walked away. His gait was quick and a little rushed, as if he were trying to get away from something quickly, without acting suspicious. I stared at him for a moment, and realized that I was about to be late for work, so I turned and walked toward the doors of the pharmacy. The shift started about as normal as most would. I clocked in, put my coffee down next to the computer, and started clearing the queue. There are so many prescriptions still here, what was that floater pharmacist doing this whole time? I exclaimed internally. As the shift continued, I finished up the queue. I would hear the occasional ringing of the door as people would come in and out of the store. The pharmacy was in the back, so I never actually saw the door open much. I figured the people coming in were truck drivers stopping in for a cup of coffee, or maybe tired grad students buying a six-pack of Red Bulls for an all-nighter study session. I chuckled in my head as I remembered those days as I kept counting a prescription. Several hours passed. I had cleared the last prescription from the queue. I looked up at the clock, and it read 3.07 a.m. Wow, no wonder I'm so tired. I need to go get another cup of coffee, I thought. Right before I walked over to the coffee machine, a loud noise startled me. What? Who's calling the pharmacy this late at night? I said out loud. Must be a hospital calling for a patient, I concluded. I looked down at the caller ID. Phone number unknown, it said. I picked up the phone and cleared my throat. This is the pharmacy where we have flu shots. My name is Cal. How can I help you? Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? This is the pharmacy. Can you hear me? Several minutes later, I heard yet another startling noise. Lane one. Oh, come on. Can I not just get some coffee? I quickly grabbed the headset off the counter and walked toward the drive-thru line. 
Before I got to the window, I started the usual phrase. Hey, welcome to the pharmacy. Are you looking to pick up? As soon as I finished my sentence, I was taken aback. There was no one at the drive through window. I looked as far as I could on either side of the lane. Not a sign of life anywhere to be found. Except for the small shaking of a particular area of trees in the far distance. The wind wasn't blowing, but that set of four to five trees shook violently, as if something grazed them while in a sprint. Must have been a, a deer or something that alerted the sensor, I guessed. I walked back to my computer. I again looked up at the clock and was confused by what I saw. 3.07 a.m. Well, that can't be, I said. It had been at least five minutes since I looked. That's when it happened. The store went completely pitch black. I jumped. Whoa! What the? I shouted. My heart began to beat out of its chest. It lasted for only about five seconds, but the complete darkness seemed to last an eternity. The power then came on as quickly as it vanished. I... I don't believe it. In all of my job training, they had never told me what to do if the power went out during a shift. I quickly walked over to the computer. It had been shut off, along with all of the lights. I reached down and pushed the power button. The screen flashed, then pulled up a mysterious blue page. Entering reserve power mode. Not all functions will be operational. Would you like to continue? I was a little confused by the prompt. Not by the wording, but by the actual text itself. Half of the words were either misspelled or were faded, almost to the point of being completely unreadable. Reluctantly, I click continue. The page that popped up was extremely simple. No options to reprint labels or look up third-party information. Just a single page for queue verification and production. Hmm, this is strange, I thought to myself. A single prescription popped up in the queue. It was a prescription for an Arthur Chesterfield. Huh. Must have popped into the queue while the power was off, I figured. At a second glance, the name jumped off the page at me. From what little information I could remember from job orientation, Arthur Chesterfield was the name of the pharmacist who opened this store back in the 1950s. My general curiosity of the situation led me to pull out my phone and Google the name Arthur Chesterfield. I clicked the only link that popped up, a Reddit chat named R Conspiracy. I read the summary of the first post. It described Arthur Chesterfield as the youngest pharmacist to ever open up their own store. But as I continued reading, the sentiment of the post became more clear. It described Arthur as a deranged lunatic who went mad after inhaling a noxious chemical in his pharmacy. At the end of the post, it stated that Arthur Chesterfield was placed in a mental ward in 1962 after he pled insanity for murdering his entire pharmacy staff. At the end of the page, there was a link to a petition. The petition read, quite simply, They're about to let a murderer roam free. Don't let this happen. Sign here. No one had signed the petition. Shocked by all of this information, I threw down my phone. There's... there's no way, I whispered. I was thrown back into reality by the sound of the door. I knew they were heading towards me. A large statured figure turned the corner and approached the pharmacy. As the figure moved closer, I realized that this was a man. A very old man. He looked like he was over a hundred years old. He approached the counter and softly uttered, I'm here for my medication. 
taken aback by what was in front of me, I asked nervously, Okay, what is your name, sir? The man said nothing. I asked again, What is your name, sir? I want my medication. The light began to flicker. I want my medication. I want my medication. Give me my medication. The light suddenly shut off. It was pitch black again. The man wasn't screaming anymore. I reached in front of me, trying to find a way out of the store. I bumped into the counter and found my almost empty mug of coffee. I knew I was at my computer. I grabbed my keys from the desk and began moving towards the only light I could see. The moon in the window of the drive-thru. The trees that shook earlier were viciously vibrating by the ground that was shaking underneath my feet. I reached for the window as I saw the reflection of a face directly behind me, eyes glowing as yellow as the moon. Then, everything faded to black. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.